0: Welcome again to Hope and Other Goodness. This episode is a sermon recorded outside on August 16, 2020 at United Church of Wayland in Wayland, Michigan. The text for the day is from Matthew 15, where Jesus pushes back on the purity tests of the Pharisees. I'm often reminded that some of these passages that seem, I don't know, seem simple or commonplace to us weren't when they were written or first told. The idea of being ritually clean or unclean was a really big deal. And there were lots of ways to become unclean, and there were very specific ways to be clean in order to eat, in order to worship, to enter the temple— to be in relationship with one another. There are ways you could become defiled is another word that is used. So it's a really big deal. And Jesus, it seems, the stories that we were given, uh, you know, he cared a little bit about that. And it wasn't so much that he had disdain for the law itself. He says, I haven't come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill it. And what he really seemed to struggle with was that the Pharisees... It wasn't so much that they knew the law, that they were focused on the law or even fixated on it, or that they were trying to hold other people to following the law. It had its purpose. It had its place. But it seems like what Jesus was really sort of after, it was the way in which they were carrying it out. It seemed like that they were carrying out the law in ways that were just set up to catch people. To, to trip people up to to knock people off off their game and to and to really sort of delineate who is in, who gets it and who is out and who doesn't get it. And Jesus didn't I don't know, just didn't seem to have a lot of time for that. Some of the traditional ways of determining who is in and who is out, Jesus didn't just didn't play that game really. Now, the tradition says is that there were 613 Hebrew laws. 613. Not just the Ten Commandments we know, but an additional 603 of them. And different stories say different things about these 613 laws. Um, And people still argue about it today, about whether there are 613 or whether if there are 413. You know, it'd be nice to take 200 off, but 413 laws still seems like quite a bit to follow. And there's reasons for this. So some of them, they, they some say is that there are 365 prohibitions or thou shalt nots. And one for every day of the calendar year of the solar calendar. And then they would say that there are 248 um, thou shalt or or positive commandments saying you should do these things. And they say, some stories say that those 248 are to represent all the bones and the major organs of the human body. So interesting things. But not everybody agrees with these, and there are different stories and different traditions around them. But in general, there's this idea that the whole Hebrew law is sort of referred to as 613 laws. One of the reasons why people talk about there being less is that some of them pertain only to women, some of them pertain only to men, some of them pertain only to those who are in the land of Israel, Some of them are only effective when the temple was still standing. So this is some of the reasons why there is disagreement about just how many laws there are and how they can or should be carried out. Some of those laws were called purity codes. And the idea was, is that if you abided by these, that you would be pure not only in the community's eyes, but in God's eyes. And so that was a goal of sorts. You want it you wanted to be pure. You want to be acceptable to God. It was also a way to form a national identity that if you, if you abided by these particular laws, these particular codes, it was easier to delineate if you were a part of the Israelites or not. And this also sort of made sense as a survival mechanism at the time is because they were a rather small band of misfits, and they inhabited pretty valuable land. And they were constantly being overtaken by other larger, more powerful empires. And so it made sense to have these sort of rules of conduct of of what became uh, a purity of identity so that they could keep their identity because it was tough when you were always being conquered by outside forces. But it seems like even by Jesus's day, and now again, Rome was in charge at this time. They were part of the Roman Empire. It seemed even by Jesus's day that, maybe for far longer than that, that these purity codes, these laws ended up getting in the way as much, if not more, than they served a valuable purpose this is one of the reasons why Jesus famously ate with tax collectors and prostitutes, two groups of people that were ritually unclean. So Jesus was always doing this. Jesus was always out there with the misfit, always bringing people in from the side. The people that in their community were told that they were unclean, unfit, unworthy. Jesus said, oh come to me, eat with me, let's hang out for a while. And so he got a lot of flack for it. And perhaps rightfully so. I wonder, I wonder what kind of purity tests we put out for one another these days. In the news these days, uh, in our, our political commentary, our political universe as the election continues to be impending upon us and swirl with more fervor, you, we're seeing ourselves, and for a long time, right, kind of sort of put ourselves into two camps. And part of the ways that we know which camp you're in is whether you can kind of pass the conservative or liberal purity test. And in order to do that, you have to hold certain viewpoints. You have to have certain beliefs. And, and the, the more ardently you hold them, the more viciously you're willing to ascribe to a certain set of beliefs, you know, the, the more on the inside you or I happen to be. But we know that it's also causing a lot of trouble, right? There seems to be as much infighting amongst conservatives and Republicans and infighting amongst Democrats and liberals these days as there is between the two groups because we can't decide who's in and who's out. And if I can just say this bluntly, what a waste of time. Amen. We spend so much time fighting one another about things that might matter that we ignore and have forgotten, have never learned how to build relationships. When did it stop being a sign of adulthood, of maturity, to be able to have a reasonable, disagreeing conversation with another adult? <laughs> but it's difficult these days, isn't it? We hear, we could, I mean, I don't even have to list the different issues or topics. Just pick one in your head and imagine talking to someone who shares the opposing, and that's the whole point right there, the opposing viewpoint. That's how we talk about it these days, right? It's not just a different viewpoint. It's not just an additional viewpoint. It's an opposing viewpoint, and lots of these things are complicated. They involve human lives. Actually they all involve human lives, and which one of our lives is simple and lacks complexity? But think about having the conversation of someone with the opposing viewpoint. Can't you almost imagine your, your your gut sort of tensing up, your your chest getting tight, like it's harder to suck in air because you know it's coming? <laughs> the opposition is here. I'm just gonna risk saying it again. What a waste of time. It's not that there aren't valid, disagreements about things that are extremely important, but the ways that we are having the conversations, the ways that they're being carried out, the reactionary responses, does more harm than good in my mind. So how do we solve some of these large issues? How do we solve the fact that our country is still riddled with racial discrimination? How do we do that? I don't know exactly. But I know pouncing on one another isn't going to do anything. The more that we can only divide and separate ourselves by how pure we are to ascribe to one set of beliefs or another, we are going to continue to be in opposition to one another. And sometimes it seems like the only point is to be in opposition to one another. Now we all can claim the high ground and say, well, it's those other people. I don't need to be in opposition to them. It's just that they forced me into this position, right? (laughs) What does it take to have a conversation about life, about how we're living, about how we're voting? What does it take? And believe you me, I'm not immune from any of this stuff. I'm talking about my own experience of trying to have conversations with people who I know are going to vote differently than me in November. But if we can't talk to one another, we are all going down the same treacherous path. And oppositional thinking serves almost nothing other than to perpetuate what already is. If any of us believe in change, want something different, want something better, want something healthier, want something more loving, more caring, more generous, then just being opposed to those who theoretically don't only keeps the systems the same. I think that's what Jesus was trying to get the Pharisees to understand. I love the translation that Lily read, but you've hurt the Pharisees' feelings, I love that translation. Because isn't that what gets thrown around too? We're always talking about whose feelings are getting hurt. And it's, the problem is, is that that's actually important, right? It's actually important if people's feelings are being hurt. But we use it as an excuse to stop having a conversation with one another. And sometimes, it's not just about people's feelings getting hurt, it's that people have actually been wounded and hurt and continue to be so things that are either not their choice or there are choices that are made but we don't believe in forgiveness anymore, we don't believe in redemption anymore or reconciliation anymore it doesn't seem like it anyways how are we supposed to build a community like a church community if we don't actively believe in something like forgiveness we're human beings, we're going to hurt one another it sucks but it's true, right? If we can't talk about it, if we can't talk about the things going on between us, let alone the larger issues in our country, how are we ever going to build community? I heard recently a a brief quote that said, a question was asked to an author, said, so what's at stake um, when we all always have to be right? What's at stake when all of us always have to be right? And the woman responded back, she said, You mean other than community? We can't be community if each of us always has to be right. And of course, if any of us gets asked this question directly, all of us deny it. Nobody claims it. Well, of course I always have to be right. We don't own it that way. But how often do our behaviors, how often do our anxieties, our fears lead us to be protective and defensive and resistant to anything that doesn't sound like something that looks or sounds like us. Even in our beloved UCC, we are as guilty as anybody else. The thing that seemed to separate Jesus from these purity tests, I had a friend recently asked me, he said, how many purity tests would Jesus pass? I'm sort of like, probably none. And if he did, it'd only be by accident. Because the idea of purity tests is to divide. It's to divide. It's, it's, to, it's to make in and out, us and them. That's the only purpose of a purity test. And back when it was with the Israelites and their literal safety was on the line, their literal survival was on the line, it did make some sense. But Jesus's point was always the relationship. Always. His, his purpose was always the relationship. And the, the God, the God, the triune God, Trinity that we have, we've turned it into some sort of far off doctrine that is sort of a nice thing to say sometimes. But the idea, the depth of it is that God is relational in God's self. The God that we claim to believe in is a relating and a relational God who wants to be in relationship to us and even relates to God's own self. Even at the beginning in Genesis says, and we made the man and woman in our image. The story we have refers to God in the plural. The point is the relationship. We don't know how to relate to one another very well. And if the only thing we can do is to find more ways, more creative ways, if we can only waste our imagination on trying to figure out who is in and who is out, we have not figured out how to relate to one another. And it's going to sink the ship that we're all sailing in. And many will continue just to blame those other folks, whoever they are. So what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? Even here, even the 20 so of us here in this place, what are we going to do to relate to one another in a way that changes the tide, that turns the tide, that does something different? And believe me, I don't know all of you well enough yet to be judging how well you do or don't do it. I just know in general, in this country today, we're all sort of, in this mess together. How are we going to do it? How are we going to do it differently? Well, one of the simplest things that all spiritual traditions have always taught us is that when you feel your chest getting tight and your stomach starting to turn because you know the opposition, in air quotes, is coming towards you, is to take a deep breath. (laughs) Take a deep breath this conversation is not going to end or start anything that is not going to be able to be reconciled. Take a deep breath. Take a deep breath. Because these days where there is so much information floating around that we can't even count that the other person we're talking to has the same information as us. So it does, does no good to shame them because they don't. It doesn't do any good because we can't all keep up on it all at once. And all of us have had different experiences, and all of us have been exposed to different things. We've all had pains and hurts and losses in certain ways that form who we are, and if we can't have a conversation with someone else in the ways that they have been hurt, wounded, shaped, been loved or unloved, how much we can do. In the church in Wisconsin that I served for Five and a half years, we put on the the back wall of the main office in big, like, 18-inch letters, be kind. And then underneath, which was the most important part, but it was in this little script, so I don't know that everybody read it all the time, it says, for everyone you meet is going through something you know nothing about. That you know nothing about. So take a deep breath. (laughs) Take a deep breath. Because chances are, That person needs to be loved in some way that they just haven't been. We haven't been loving one another well for a really long time. We haven't been caring for one another in a really long time. And so the hope for a community like this, for this church, is that we figure out how to love and care for one another even when we disagree, even when we have hurt one another, even when we hold supposedly irreconcilable differences. How do we do that here today? Because what we know is that Jesus, over all of the laws, all the purity codes, all the purity tests, is that he chose to relate to people. He saw the person in front of him. That's the whole idea of love your neighbor. Yes, it can be people in China, but most often it's the people that are right here next to you that we struggle to love the most. The idea of neighbor is proximity. Love those that you're with. One of the best pieces of advice I ever got was from a friend when uh, I was calling when Jamie and I were newly married, and she said, choose love over being right. Choose love over being right. I said, that's not what's happening. (laughs) I'm not choosing to be right over love. Of course I love her. (laughs) After she said that to me the first time, it took almost two years for me to say, uh, so I uh, I think today I'm... I I chose love over being right. She's like, oh, that sounds good. (laughs) Choose love over being right. Choose love over being right. Choose love over being right. Because if we ever want to come together, love is the only way that we're going to get somebody to unite with us, to be in relationship with us. Being right will automatically push them away most of the time, particularly in this climate. So Jesus did. Jesus chose love over literally everything else. So maybe we can do it just a little bit. Just today, just this week. And get a little bit closer to relating to one another. A little bit closer to the kingdom of God that Jesus talked about. Just a little. (laughs) Just a little. Because sacrificing community for being right probably isn't worth it. May God bless you. Amen.